Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So, I don't know if you guys uh, ever heard this before, but there was this new... Uh, a, a new monk that went to a monastery, and this monastery was uh, kind of unique. They had to take a seven-year vow of silence, and uh, they, if you joined that monastery, you had to take a seven-year vow of silence. At the end of seven years, you were allowed to speak two words. And so this new monk joined this monastery, and uh, he took the seven-year vow of silence. At the end of the seven years, he was called into the head monk, uh, into his office and he said man congratulations you've completed seven years of silence you can now speak two words and so the guy said bed hard the head monk said wow that's interesting okay so the guy went back to another seven years of silence a vow of silence at the end of another seven years once more he was called into the head monk's office and the head monk said man congratulations you've completed another seven years you have two words you can say he said food cold the head monk said wow that's interesting so another seven years of silence he completed at the end of the, of the third time of seven years of silence, he was called into the head monk's office and he said, congratulations, once more you've completed seven more years of silence. You have two words you can say. And the, head, the monk said, I quit. <laughs> and the head monk man, man, I, I figured you would have. You've done nothing but complain ever since you've been here. <laughs> this morning we're gonna be talking about Complaining. You might, might be you're complaining like, oh man, he's talking about complaining. <laughs> We're going to be talking about complaining because that's what Numbers 11 and Numbers 12 deal with. Not only complaining, but envy. And so um, as I was preparing this and kind of going through this, one of the things that was kind of on my heart was, okay, we can talk about complaining. We shouldn't complain. Hopefully we all know that. But what do we do instead of complaining? What do we do when we're surrounded by somebody else who's complaining to us or we're in a group and people are complaining? How do we deal with the envy that's in our own hearts? And so hopefully we'll be pulling that out as we go through Numbers chapter 11 and Numbers chapter 12. So if you join me, I'm going to begin reading with verse 1 of chapter 11. Now when the people, <clears throat> now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it. And his anger was aroused, so the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then Moses cried out, uh, then the people, excuse me, cried out to Moses. And when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Tabera, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. So the people were complaining. And. Uh, and so the Lord sent fire and burned some on the outside of the camp or the outskirts of the camp. Now we're going to be in a few more verses or actually in verse 4 we're going to be reading about the mixed multitude. And my guess is that that was probably the outskirts of the camp would be in where the mixed multitude had camped. Because if you recall in our earlier studies in Numbers... The children of Israel, the different tribes, they were assigned to specific locations all gathered around 
where the tabernacle was in the center of the camp. And so on the outskirts of the camp, this is probably where the 12, uh, excuse me, where the mixed multitude uh, had been or where they were camping. Well, what was their complaint? We don't even know. The Bible doesn't even tell us that. It must have been a trivial issue, and yet it was enough for God to be displeased with them. You know, when we get to 1 Corinthians, Paul kind of talks, goes back, and, and he, he reflects on this, uh, the time of the, the uh, children of Israel wandering through the wilderness. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 9 and 10. He says, Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, what's interesting in, in this verse here that we're looking at in uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11, that word complain, that's only used one other place in the Old Testament. It's used in Lamentations 3, verses 38 and 39. But that word in Hebrew, it's only used two places. And what it means in the Hebrew is to blame or to find fault. And in Lamentations 3, that's written by Jeremiah. Now, you know who Jeremiah was, the prophet to Judah. Right before the children of Israel, or before the, the nation of Judah went into Babylonian captivity. And so it was, this was Lamentations is written right after the Jews went into captivity. And so in Lamentations 3, verses 38 and 39, Jeremiah writes this, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? I was looking this up in the word study dictionary commentary that, or the word study dictionary that I use on my uh, Bible study tools, and they made a comment next to that verse They said complaining is ruled out because of humanity's sins. When you and I complain, what are we doing? Well, we're finding fault, right? We're blaming somebody. We might be complaining about somebody. Or we might be complaining about other, or just a situation we're in. But in essence, we're assigning blame. And often, we're blaming God for our situation. And uh, Jeremiah's point in Lamentations was the nation of Judah had no reason to complain about being in captivity. They had no right to complain because of their sin. And listen, if you think about it, you and I, if we are born again believers saved by grace, what is grace? It's undeserved merit. We don't even deserve God's grace, God's favor. And so we really are what? We're sinners deserving God's punishment but we've been saved by God's grace. Knowing that, do we really have any right to complain, to blame God for a situation in our life? You know, it's almost like, and you've probably heard this phrase, it's like saying, why do bad things happen to good people? You ever heard that before? Maybe you've said it before. Why do bad things happen to good people? The problem with that saying is, according to the Bible, there is no good people. We are all sinners. No one is good, the Bible says, by God's standard of righteousness. So instead of complaining, instead of assigning blame, what should you and I do? Well, the opposite of blame is to bless, to thank. 
I like what David wrote in Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That Psalm, verse 34, was written when David was on the run, hiding from King Saul. God had already told uh, David through the prophet Samuel that David was going to be the king of Israel. And so David had this promise from the Lord, and yet here he is in this situation. He's not the king of Israel. He's on the run from Saul who's trying to kill him. And so he's in a very difficult place, and yet he says that. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And so instead of assigning blame, we should be blessing, blessing the Lord. And what we see here, what's interesting is the people complain and Moses prays for them in verse 2. Psalm 106 talks about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. And in verse 23, it says, Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses' chosen one stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy him. That's exactly what Moses is doing. He's standing in the breach and praying for this complaining people. And so Moses names that place Tabirah, which means burning. And I think it's very fitting because a fire, you think about it, what does a fire do? Well, it consumes. And if you have a critical attitude, a person who is giving to, given to complaining and whining, if you're given to it and you're focusing on it, it will eventually consume you. You'll be consumed by it. That's all you can think about is how bad things are. Not only does a fire consume, but a fire destroys if you think about it, a, a, a critical attitude, man, it'll destroy joy. It'll destroy our joy. And if it's directed at a person, if we're complaining about, you know, we might be complaining about a situation, but maybe we're complaining about a person, it'll destroy that relationship that we have with that person. So fires consume, fires destroys, and the other thing is fires spread. And that's another thing, given the right environment, complaining is contagious. And we'll see that as we go through here. Look at verse four. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Wait, who were the mixed multitude? I mentioned them a little bit earlier. Who were they? Well, Leviticus 24, verse 10, talks about a situation about a a young man that gets into a fight with another guy. And this young man was a son of an Israelite woman and an Egyptian father. So there was a mixed nationality, and I'm sure he wasn't the only person among the children of Israel that maybe had a mixed nationality. There probably was Egyptians that left Egypt with the children of Israel. Not only that, but there were probably other foreigners living in Egypt at the time. And think about it. Man, if you read about the plagues in in the book of Exodus, who would want to stick around in Egypt? Man, everything is devastated. You want to go where the Lord's blessing them. And the Lord is obviously blessing the children of Israel. So you want to go where where God's blessing. And so there probably was a lot of other people that went along. And obviously there was because the Bible talks about it. That went with the children of Israel. 
Well, it was these people, the mixed multitude, who were complaining about uh, the food that they were eating. And, and, and so they gave in to, uh, the Bible says they yielded to intense craving. In other words, they gave in to the, to the lust of the flesh. That's basically what it means. What do you and I, what should we do instead of giving in to the lust of the flesh? What should we do? Romans 13, verse 14, Paul writes this. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So there's two things we can do. First of all, we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you know, what, what do you mean put on the Lord Jesus Christ? In the Greek culture, that was a Greek phrase. To be clothed with a person, it, it, it meant that you were assuming the interests of another person. It meant that you were, you were thinking like they were thinking. You were imitating their actions. You were completely consumed with this person. That's what putting on someone was. It says the mode of speech itself is taken from the custom of stage players. They assume the name and garments of the person whose character they were to act and endeavored as closely as possible to imitate him in their spirit, words, and actions. If you were a Hollywood movie star, you, would, you, would, you could identify with this. Is there any Hollywood movie stars here? No, okay. Maybe there's someone watching online. That's possible. Um, actors today understand that. It's when you put on someone else, you're getting into the character of the person that you're going to be portraying or you're, you know, you're acting a, the part of a, a doctor or you're acting the part of a, you know, whatever it is. You get into the character. I've read about or heard about actors that, you know, they get so into the character that they, they live like that person lived. They try to do everything as much as possible so that when they're on the stage, man, it's, it's like that's them. That's, and, and that's the putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's the picture that's being painted here by Paul to get into the character of Christ. That's the first thing to do. The second thing is to make no provision for the flesh. What does it mean to make no provision? It break it down. It's pro and vision. It means to know ahead, to look ahead. Well, what do you mean make no provision for the flesh? Don't focus on the flesh. Don't feed yourself, feed the lust of the flesh. Don't, don't fo fixate on it, I guess is the word I was trying to use. Um, instead of fixating and focusing on the flesh, fixate and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Feed on his faithfulness and love. So those are the two things that you and I can do. Well, the mixed multitude here, they were complaining and it was contagious. The children of Israel got swept up in it also. And so they themselves were weeping and saying, who will give us meat to eat? You know, in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. People that you hang out with, they will have an effect on you. So for you and I as believers, we know we're not supposed to complain. We're supposed to bless instead of complain. What should we do when somebody is complaining around us? When the flames, the burning, you know, because we taught, described it as burning, when those flames are licking at our feet, what are we to do? Well, we're to beat feet. <laughs> Literally, we're to get away. Don't let the flame of their complaining kindle a fire in our own hearts and minds. 
So what do we do? We don't congregate with complainers. What's their complaint? It's interesting. They say, who will give us meat to eat? What are they saying? Listen, God had miraculously provided the manna. What were they saying? Well, in essence, they were discontent with what God had given them. And they're looking for someone or something else to fulfill their desire. And evidently, these guys were into uh, mental scrapbooking. They were. They had creative memories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they did. I have creative memories all the time. Believe me, all my memories are creative, but... I can say, do you remember that? My wife goes, that's not the way it was. I'm like, well, that's the way I remember it. But look what they say. They say, we remember, we remember, verse 5, the fish that we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Now, now to be fair, they probably did enjoy a variety of food because Egypt was very abundant, at least before the plagues struck, um, before God sent his plagues on them. So there probably was a variety to eat. But listen, they were slaves. How freely could they actually really eat? And you know, the thing is, sometimes we like to say, or maybe you've heard someone say, man, I remember the good old days. You know, we're in a situation and we're, we're discontent with the, our current situation. We go, man, we remember how things used to be. I've had to struggle with that as a pastor, you know. We're in this situation right now. Man, I remember what it was like before that. And, you know, the problem is we can get creative in our memories. And the problem is if we'd be honest, the good old days were really not as good as we remember and especially when we're discontent in the present. Verse 6. So they, verse 5, they say, We remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and it's color like the color of... I like to say bedellium. I don't know if that's how you pronounce that. Verse 8. The people went about and gathered it and ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in the pans, and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna, the manna fell on it. Look at verse 6. They say, but now our whole being is dried up. You know, not only are they glamorizing the past, that, you know, we remember all the cucumbers and all the, the variety of food that they ate, but they're exaggerating the present. And that's the thing that happens in complaining sometimes. You know, it's, it's, I was, I'm writing this stuff down. I'm thinking, man, that reminds me of that song, you know, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I guess I'll go eat some worms. And, you know, that's kind of, that's the attitude that these people have. They say, we have nothing but this manna. Think about it. They're complaining about something that God miraculously provided daily for them for 40 years. They had enough that nobody went hungry of the children of Israel. Now, I like variety in food. You probably do, too. You probably think they probably got tired of, you know, uh, my wife is great. In fact, some of those bars we have, or no, they're not cake. It's, uh, well, it is cake. It's, 
it was a pumpkin recipe and she'd use butternut squash. And man, actually, it's delicious. So try one, they're, they're in the back there. Um, but how many different ways can you prepare manna? You know, they probably made manicotti, you know, manna meatloaf, manna marmalade. I'm sure there's a recipe for that. Manna smoothies, those are popular. But manna bread, and uh, maybe some people like to do go fair style and have deep fried manna on a stick, you know? I mean, so they probably had all these different ways they cooked it, but obviously they were getting tired of it and bored with it. But you know, the thing is, it wasn't even bad tasting. It says it tasted like pastry prepared with oil. In another passage of scripture, it says it's like wafers made with honey. So it's not like it's like tasted like, you know, something, whatever you think you, you hate, liver and onions or something, you know, didn't taste like that. It actually, it tasted okay. It was good. And it, and it sustained them the 40 years on, throughout their traveling in the wilderness. Psalm 78, verse 24 and 25 talks about the Lord. He says, He had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. I like what F.B. Meyer says. When our religious life is low, we tire of angels' food and our hearts turn back to the world we have left. What was the problem with them? They were being short-sighted. And that's another problem that happens when we're complaining. We get short-sighted. We get focused on our present situation. They say there's nothing at all uh, except this manna before our eyes. You know, the thing is, if the children of Israel have just been content with the manna, bless the Lord, thank the Lord for his provision daily, if they had just been content they would have realized that the Lord was bringing them to a place of great abundance. The Bible calls Canaan the land of milk and honey. But it was in his timing. You know, Father really does know best. And it was according to God's wisdom. For the time being, this was what they were to do. But he was bringing them to this place. But all they could focus on is my situation right now. I hate this food. I'm tired of it. I've ran out of recipes of how to cook it. They could only see what was in front of them at the time. And that's what happens when you and I complain. We get so short-sighted on our current situation, and short-sighted, short, short sight leads to discontentment. Adam Clark said this, it requires but little of this world's goods to satisfy a man who feels himself to be a citizen of another country and knows that this is not his rest. You've got something that you're complaining about. You're just you're discontent with whatever situation you're in right now. Man, this is not our home. We're on our way to heaven. God's preparing a place for us. Well, the people's complaining, the mixed multitude's complaining. It spreads. The children of Israel are taken up in it. And then the children of Israel are complaining. And now Moses is hearing it. And man, it's wearing on Moses. Look at verse 10. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. 
So Moses said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you would have laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep all over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. Man, you, Moses is bummed. <laughs> you can definitely tell. Moses was not complaining about the manna. He understood how God was providing it. He was starting to complain about the people who were complaining about the manna. But he too is complaining. Moses shouldn't have been complaining either. And his complaint, man, this is a study in how you and I sometimes interact with the Lord. Many times, and I know my complaint has been this way, why, Lord? Why is this situation the way it is? If you read through the book of Job, man, Job does that dozens of times. Why, Lord? David, in the Psalms, dozens of times. Why, Lord? And so Moses says, why have you afflicted me? He's saying that to the Lord. It's like, Lord, why are you out to get me? He says, why have I not found favor in your sight? Like, don't you love me, Lord? Have you ever felt that way? Lord, why? I'm serving you. I'm living my life for you. Why is this happening? Lord, are you out to get me? He says, why have you laid the burden of all these people on me? Now, think about it. Moses was to have a level of concern for the children of Israel, for the people that he was leading to the promised land. He was to have a certain level, a certain burden, a certain level of concern, because that's the difference between a hireling and a shepherd. A shepherd should have a burden for the people that they're shepherding. But you see, the thing is, God's doing a work in Moses' heart as well. He's turning Moses into an intercessor for his people. And you know it, and I know it. Being transformed by the Lord, it's not always easy. It can be painful. It's a growing experience. And, it, and it, just like growing pains, sometimes being transformed, it's difficult sometimes when we resist what the Lord's trying to do in our lives. Paul can understand that. Paul had a concern for the churches, all the different churches that he had started as he's going through his missionary journeys throughout all, all the area that he went. In 2 Corinthians 11, he kind of lists all these difficulties that he, that he go, deals with daily and, and the things that he's been in prison and shipwrecked and gone without food and gone without sleep and all the different things. And then at the end of that, he says, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So a shepherd should have a level of concern. But listen, look, look what he says. He says, did I, basically, he says, did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child? Moses is painting a word picture here. What's the word picture? It's of a mother carrying a nursing child. 
Well, that's quite apropos for what he's dealing with because the children of Israel were literally acting like babies. They literally were acting like babies, not mature people. They were throwing tantrums. Paul, again, Paul identified with that too. In Galatians 4, verse 19, it says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Dealing with immature people that are complaining and throwing tantrums. The problem was Moses was feeling like God had abandoned him to take care of the children of Israel by himself. The thing is, he wasn't carrying them. The Lord was carrying them the whole time. Isaiah 63, verse 9, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. God was carrying them. Moses wasn't carrying them. Moses, again, he kind of takes a little bit too much on himself. He says, where am I to get meat for all these people? Where, how am I going to meet that need? Again, it wasn't up to Moses to provide. God was taking care of that. He says, I'm not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. Think about it. Moses wasn't alone. Tabernacle was right there. He could go into the tabernacle. He could meet with the Lord right there. He could go to him and, and, and always approach the Lord. He wasn't bearing them alone. He says, the burden is too heavy for me. Have you ever felt that way in your own life? Man, this, this, this is too hard. I can't, I can't handle anymore. I'm about ready to break. Psalms 55 verse 22. Cast your burdens on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. So Moses was taking too much of the burden on himself. It was God who was carrying them. God was leading them. In fact, as we read last week, God was searching out places of rest for them. He was bringing them to good places where they could rest. Not only that, but he was protecting them. God was doing all that. Moses wasn't doing that. Moses was just following what the Lord was directing. And then you get to the end of that passage there, verse 15. Man, if you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. I can imagine the Lord saying, Moses, tell me how you really feel, you know. I really want to know you're holding back from me. I don't think it's right what Moses is saying here, but you know what? He's being honest. He's being honest with the Lord. And I think that's okay sometimes to be just be honest with the Lord, before the Lord. He knows your heart already. You know what I think this whole, these verses that we just read, what it really, I think what it really shows is how grumbling and complaining can wear on God's chosen leaders. Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So Moses, complaining about the people that are complaining, he's taking too much of the burden on himself. He's, he's kind of like, Lord, why are you doing this? Man, just kill me now. You know, the thing is, God never rebukes him. The Lord doesn't rebuke Moses. But just like Job, just like David, just like you and I, when we say, God, why is this going on? God never told him why. 
God never gave him the why. And sometimes he won't, most of the time, he doesn't give us the answer to our why as, as, as well. At the end there, verse 15, he says, do not let me see my wretchedness. Well, the thing is, God wanted him to see his wretchedness. wretchedness. God wanted Moses to see his inability to carry the burden alone. You maybe you're in a place where God wants you, you get to a place like, man, I can't carry this anymore. God wants you to be in that place where you say, that's right, you can't carry that. That's why you should cast your burden on me. God wanted Moses to see his weakness. Sometimes we, we do everything we can in our own strength. And when finally we get to the end, it's like, okay, now I'm going to pray. Well, we shouldn't be doing that. We should be praying right away. We should be going to the Lord right away, carrying, casting our burdens on him. God wanted to bring Moses to the same place that he brought Paul and to the same place he wants to bring you and I. And, and Paul says it well, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response is, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, man, then I'm strong. God wants us to see our own weakness, our own inability to take care of ourselves. He wants us to be in a place of dependence upon him. And so the Lord, he responds to Moses. And it's, again, it's not rebuke. The Lord is merciful to Moses in this situation and he addresses Moses' complaint and he provides co-laborers for him. Look at verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. Notice the criteria of these co-laborers. Moses, uh, the Lord doesn't tell Moses, hey, go gather 70 volunteers. You know, find out if there's 70 guys that want to lead the children of Israel to be, to be your co-laborers. He doesn't say that. He doesn't also say, hey, pick people that you, you're watching their lives and man, I think that'll be a good leader. Don't pick potential leaders. What does he say? Pick those that are already doing the work. Pick elders that are already elding. Pick deacons that are already deaking. You know, pick people that are already doing uh, ministering in that capacity. I love it when I see someone, and sometimes in our ministry, you know, we appoint people to different roles within the church, and we give them a title, elder, or whatever, deacon. Um, I love it when you see them, and they're already doing it, and it's like they're doing it without the title. That's so important. That's the, that's the model that we're given here. What else are they to do? He says, bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. That's the first priority of these men, just to stand with Moses. They weren't like, Moses, I want you to, you know, take, take time off and, you know, let them lead for a while and then you lead for a little while. It's not that at all. He says, I just want them standing with you to support you. And that's the first priority of these guys. And then he says, I will take of the spirit that is upon you and put the same upon them. They should be filled with the Spirit just like you are. They should have the same Spirit and the same heart that Moses had. 
Paul was, had the same situation with Timothy. The next thing he says is that they shall bear the burden of the people with you. And Paul says this about Timothy in Philippians 2.20. He says, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Timothy was one of those people. He had the same level of concern for the people that Paul had. And that's what the Lord's saying. I'm going to give them your, the same spirit that you have, that they have the same burden, the same care for the people that you have. And so the Lord addresses Moses, I believe, in his mercy. Now the Lord in his discipline is going to address the people's complaints and he's going to provide what they've been craving for, which is meat. Verse 18, then you shall say to the people, Consecrates, uh, excuse me, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. There the Lord will, therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat, not one day, not two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? You know, it's a really a scary thing. <laughs> it's a frightening thing when the Lord grants you something that you've been, you've been you know, asking for and asking for and asking for something that you shouldn't have. Something that you've been craving for that you shouldn't be craving for when the Lord grants you. That's, that's not a good sign. Verse 21, and Moses said, the people who I am among are 600,000 men on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see what I will say. Or me, now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. We get a little bit of clues in this verse of how big the, 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 the congregation, the children of Israel. Moses mentioned 600,000 men. Add to that their wives. Most of them were probably married. Add to that their children. So there's probably, uh, you know, who knows how much the average family size was in, in those days, but that kind of gives you a clue. A lot of people think there's at least 2 million people, maybe even more. So it kind of gives you a clue of how many people God was providing the manna for and how much. And so Moses is thinking, man, how are we going to get, you know, enough pork chops? Well, it wouldn't have been pork, I guess. So <laughs> how, come, how can we get enough, you know, uh, beef steaks? Or I guess they could eat beef. So um, how are you going to accomplish this, Lord? And you know what's interesting? He gives the Lord two options. He basically says, are you going to do it with flocks and herds, you know, cattle? Or are you going to do it with a fish? And the Lord, what's his response? Watch me. That's all he says. Just watch me. Just wait and see. You'll see. You know, it's the same thing the Lord says to you and I. We're living in a situation. It's like, Lord, how are you going to do this? First, we're complaining. Lord, why are we in this situation? Then, Lord, how are you going to get this? God just says, you know what? Just trust me. Just watch me. I'll take care of it. What does he do? Verse 24. 
So Moses went out and told the people of the told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people and placed them all around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 20 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name, was, the name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but who had not, not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, saying, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel." Sometimes it's really tempting to complain about other Christians that are not in our camp, that are in some other tribe. They're not in our tribe. They're, you know, they're not part of what we're doing here. And it's, sometimes it's easy to complain about them. Notice who's complaining. Joshua, the son of Nun. He's going to be the future leader of the nation of Israel. And you see... God's doing a work in him as well. God's preparing Joshua as well. I love Moses' response. He says, are you upset because they're not all with us? And he says, I wish all of God's people are filled with the Spirit and prophesying. Moses didn't feel threatened by a ministry done outside the scope of what he was doing. That reminds me of a time in the New Testament in Luke chapter 9, verse 49, it says, Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. And kind of see a little bit of, a little bit of growth in Moses in this situation. Well, again, the Lord in his discipline, addresses the children of Israel. Look at verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and left them fluttering near the camp, about a day's journey on this side, and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all day, uh, excuse me, and the people stayed up all that day, all night and all the next day, and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Talk about some amazing baseball stats, right? Um, no one got less than ten homers. Yeah, that's amazing. What is a homer? Well, I had to look it up because I don't know. Well, I know what a homer is in baseball, but uh, it's about eight bushels, apparently. So, Nobody got less than 80 bushels of quail. So whatever, whatever that amount is, it's, it's a lot of quail. Verse 33. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So he called the name of that place Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. 
From Kibroth Hatava, the people moved to Hazaroth and camped at Hazaroth. Remember Moses' question? Kind of put God in a little bit of a box, right? There's two options, Lord. How are you going to do it? You're going to provide flocks of cattle or, you know, fish. God says, God does neither. He just provides uh, fowl. <laughs> Another flocks, not fish. He'll provide fowl. And so Moses here, he calls this place Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of lust. Paul wrote this, Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, we need to not live according to the flesh, right? We're to set our minds to make no provision on the things of the flesh. Well, how do we do that? Galatians 5, verse 16, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we get to chapter 12 now. And this is another form of complaining, but it's envy. We're going to talk about that now. Verse 1, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And you go and you start looking into, well, who's this Ethiopian woman that Moses married? And I tell you what, the opinions are all over the map. I don't really know, to be honest with you. Chances are it could very well have been Zipporah, his wife, she was from Midian. And Midian was a country of Arabia Chusia, which we know as Cush or Cush in the Bible. And so it could very well possibly be a derogatory way that Miriam and Aaron referred to Zipporah. It's not important to our study as to whether she was, you know, whether Moses, you know, maybe Zipporah died and she married, he actually did marry a, a different woman who was from Ethiopia or that it's a derogatory term for Zipporah, it's really not that important. You know, sometimes people complain, and what they're saying, sometimes it's like there's something beneath what they're complaining. And that's what I think what's happening here. It's really not that important who she was, because it's a true, it's a smokescreen for their true complaint. Look at verse 2. This is their true complaint. So they said... Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? See, they're complaining about this Ethiopian woman, but it boils down to they were upset with Moses, so they were jealous. They were envious of Moses. Miriam, you, you recall from Exodus, actually, that Miriam was Moses' older sister. Aaron probably, I don't know for sure, but probably was a younger brother of Moses. And evidently, Miriam is the instigator, and I'll explain that, or we'll see that why later. Did they have, did she have jealousy over Moses' leadership role? Maybe there was simmering tensions between Zipporah and Miriam, you know, a sister and a sister-in-law. Maybe there was some kind of a family issue. Whatever it was, the root was envy. And it's interesting, it says, so they said... 
So obviously the murmuring and complaining that Miriam was doing, they were starting to talk to each other about Moses. Proverbs 16, verse 28, a perverse man sows strife and a whisperer separates the best of friends. Because you know that's what's taking place behind the scenes. Moses and Aaron, Miriam are there, or excuse me, Aaron and Miriam, they're complaining together behind Moses' back. James 3, verse 16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. I'll explain in a few minutes why I think it was Miriam who instigated it. And if that's the case, what should Aaron have done? Man, he's the high priest. What should he have done when Miriam was complaining to him about Moses or about Zipporah or the Ethiopian woman, whoever? He should have admonished Miriam. Proverbs 17, verse 14 says, The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. Man, just stop it. He should have admonished Miriam. Proverbs 26, verse 20, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no talebearer, strife ceases. You get someone starts complaining to you, man, say, hey, you know what? Let's, let's bless the Lord instead. Or, or, you know, they're complaining about a person. Man, we really shouldn't be talking. We really shouldn't be gossiping about that person. Admonish them. Well, what if she doesn't stop? Because that happens, right? You, well, if admonishing Miriam doesn't work, then avoid Miriam. Titus 3, 10 and 11, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. But you know, I think, there's a, I think the problem is Aaron may have been harboring those feelings already. And M Miriam's just kind of bringing them or giving voice to them, bringing them to the surface. One thing that we see in Aaron's character is he's swayed easily by people. Remember back in the golden calf incident? The people all come to Aaron and they're like, Aaron, you got to do something. We don't know where this Moses went. And so Aaron gives in to the people and he takes gold and, and he molds that golden calf for them to worship. And here we see, obviously he's being smeared, uh, not smeared, he's being swayed by his sister Miriam. Proverbs 29, verse 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Going back to verse 2, so they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. You know what cracks me up about that? Moses is the one that wrote this. <laughs> Moses says that Moses was a very humble person. It's interesting. I, there was a guy that, uh, a friend of mine, and uh, one time he came to me and he was, just, he was just telling me how humble he is. And in the context of our conversation, I'm like, I'm like man, you were just dripping with pride and you're telling me how humble you are. It's like you're being prideful and telling me how humble you are. I'm like, oh. The Lord heard it. What does humble mean? 
Well, if you're reading King James, if you, this is the New King James I'm reading from. If you're reading from the King James, the word is meek. And it says this, it's used of persons who put themselves after others in importance. Persons who are not proud, haughty, or supercilious. That's a good word for a crossword puzzle. Uh, Self-asserted. What does supercilious, sur, supercilious means? It means this, behaving or looking as though one thinks one is superior to others. Listen, it wasn't that Moses was less than Miriam and Aaron. We'll see that in, again in a couple of verses. But Moses didn't have to promote himself. He didn't feel threatened. He didn't feel threatened by the other people prophesying. He, he, he doesn't feel like he has to promote himself or defend himself. It seems to me like the incident in chapter 11, that kind of changed Moses a little bit. He's like, yeah, I guess I don't have to carry that burden. It's not all on me. And so Moses... It's like he learned his lesson. It wasn't his burden, and it wasn't his battle to wage. He didn't try to defend himself. The Lord did. Look at verse 4. Suddenly, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. Then he said, Hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, the Lord, make myself known uh, to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against Moses, my servant, or speak against my servant, Moses. You see, God's the one that appointed Moses. Now, I know when he first left Egypt, he was kind of like taking on that role of deliverer, and he was kind of going ahead of the Lord. But at the burning bush in Midian, Moses was a reluctant deliverer, and yet God called him for this, for this particular task. And unlike a prophet who hears, you know, has a dream or a vision, uh, Moses heard directly from the Lord face to face. And what are they doing? Again, they're complaining about Moses. And in effect, they're complaining about God. They're basically accusing God of making a wrong choice. Why him and not me? Have you ever felt that way? Why, God, are you blessing those people and not me? Are you out to get me? Why, why, why? That's their complaint. It should have been me and not him. Verse 9, so the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from the, above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. This is why I say, obviously, I think Miriam was the instigator because God struck Miriam with leprosy, not Aaron. Verse 11, so Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. Verse 13, so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, 
Please heal her, O God, I pray. Then the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterward she may be received again. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. And afterward, the people moved from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Man, if I was Moses, I'd be like, yes, God, give it to him, suck it to him, you know. <laughs> Moses doesn't gloat. Moses, what does he do? He prays for Miriam. Again, God is doing a work in Moses' heart. He's transforming, transforming Moses into an, an intercessor for his people. And so Moses, he doesn't gloat. He prays for them. Verse 14 is kind of an interesting verse. The Lord says, if her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Uh, you know, apparently that was a sign of contempt on the part of a spitter. I guess it is in our culture today. If someone spits on you, aside of, you know, if you're sitting in the front row and I'm accidentally doing it, but, you know, if, you're, if you purposely spit in someone, that means you have a contempt for them. It's not like, hi, friend, you know. You're, you, you. So it's a sign of contempt on the part of the spitter, and it was a sign of shame on the person spat upon. Man, what a tough thing for a father to spit on a, on a daughter who's being rebellious. And what shame would that person have? And obviously they'd be, they, they'd be unclean at that point. And so she was to be put out of the, the camp. Well, you know what's interesting too? The Lord obviously heard Moses' prayer. And it's, it doesn't say that she's healed, but obviously she was healed. He evidently heals her, but she still has to bear the shame for her rebellion outside the camp seven days. What a picture of sin here. First of all, we're told that the Lord departed from Miriam and Aaron. The Lord was displeased with that. Look at Proverbs 6. Well, you don't have to look at it, but I'll read to you. Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 19. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven of them are an abomination to him. A proud look, you know, being prideful. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord, discord among brethren. God hates that. And so the Lord departed from Miriam and, and Aaron. See, sin causes a separation from God. She became a leper, and leprosy in the Bible, it's a picture of sin. It's a disease that literally eats away at a person. And if a person is left with, if they have envy and it develops into bitterness, and if it's never dealt with in your heart, it'll eat away at a person and destroy them. Miriam was shut out of the camp of Israel for seven days. Not only did sin, not only does sin separate you and I from God, a holy God, but it separates us from one another, especially when we sin against one another. It separates us from other people. And the children of Israel had to wait seven days while Miriam was outside the camp before they could journey to the wilderness of Paran. You see, sin, your and my sin, it also affects others. It can hold back a marriage. It can hold back a ministry. It can hold back a church. It's, doesn't, it's not just us. It affects others around us. 
So we have, I just want to kind of do a quick review here of some of the, what I think maybe are the key points that we looked at this morning, dealing with complaining. When we complain, you guys are like, I can never complain. Well, I do once in a while, I'll be honest with you. When we complain, we're finding fault. We're blaming. So what should we do instead of blaming? We're to bless. Bless the Lord. Thank the Lord. Bless the people that maybe you're complaining about. Pray for them. Ask the Lord to bless them. That's a difficult thing, isn't it? When we complain, bless instead. If we have a critical attitude, like fire unchecked, it'll consume your joy, and it'll eventually consume you, and it can spread to others. Instead of yielding to the intense craving of the flesh, because that's one of the that's one of the you know the the acts of the flesh is complaining and envy. What should we do? Put on or get into the character of Christ. Man, imitate him. Think like Christ. Act like Christ. And make no provision for the flesh. Don't give it a place in your thoughts and in your focus. Don't congregate with complainers because it's contagious. You can get caught up in it. And if someone is complaining to you or around you, man, admonish them. Feel free to do that. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. You should be able to come up to me if I'm complaining about someone and say, you know what, maybe should we really be complaining about them? Should we really be talking about them, you know? I'll give you free license to say that to me. And hopefully I can do the same to you. Hopefully I can come to you and say, you know what, we shouldn't be gossiping. We shouldn't be dealing with that. If someone's complaining to you, admonish them. And if they keep doing it, the Bible says avoid them. Don't hang out with them because it's going to wear on you. If you're tempted to complain about your present situation, and who isn't? <laughs> Seriously, who isn't tempted to complain in our current situation? I just think of what's going on as far as, you know, uh, everything that's going on. <laughs> if you're tempted to complain about your present situation, realize your memories of the good old days, they're probably a little bit creative. It probably wasn't as good as you think it was before. And understand, don't be short-sighted. Understand God doesn't have you in this place forever. I, you know, I think about this, this shutdown. It's like, why, why are we having to deal with this? And it's easy to complain about it. But you know what? It's temporary. It is. It may not seem like it is, but it's temporary. And God's doing a work. You know, I think about the good old days. Well, the, the, the good old days may not be, well, they certainly weren't as good as I think they were. But it also is God's maybe taken you and I to a different place. Maybe he's bringing the whole church to a different place where we minister differently. Because we've been doing church the same way for how many years? And, you know, you kind of get into the habit. It just becomes like, I don't know, like a program type of a thing. Maybe God's taking you and I to a place where he wants us to minister in a totally different way to those around us. It could be. But whatever the case is, Man, this is not our home. <laughs> Heaven is our home. So don't get so like, this is it, you know. It's not it for you and I as born-again believers in Jesus Christ. And instead of carrying your burdens, cast them on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. God loves you. He's not out to get you. He loves you. He has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. He has a plan and a purpose for this fellowship, for the church at large. He has a plan and purpose for government. God's in control. Why don't you stand up? Let's go Lord in prayer. 
Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I, I can be given to complain. Lord, I can grumble and, and, and I can blame people or blame situations. But Lord, I need to realize ultimately I'm blaming you because you've allowed this situation or you've put me in this place. And so, Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us. Lord, as we're tempted to complain, we're tempted to give in to that flesh. Lord God, that we would instead put on Christ. We would get into the character and nature of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we would not uh, focus, we'd not have provision, make provision for the flesh. We wouldn't focus on it. We wouldn't let it consume our thoughts and our speech and our conversations. But Lord, we would focus on you and we would feed on you and on your faithfulness. Lord, I, I pray that you would help each one of us because I know that that's a struggle. It's, it's hard. And Lord, it's easy to be envious of other people. Lord, I pray that you would give us the heart of, of people that we would really truly rejoice with those who rejoice. Lord, we would be joyful with those that are being blessed, Lord. And instead of saying, why me, Lord, that we would just, just thank you, Lord, for blessing them. And Lord, understand that, Lord, you've got a plan and a purpose for our lives. And that we would just trust you in whatever situation we're in right now. So I thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, as we close with this worship song, I pray that, Lord, just so it would be our heart's prayer to you this morning. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.